To be conscious is simply to be here now. Hey everyone, welcome back to University. I'm Anne Marie Chiresso, your host and coach. On today's show, I'm kicking off my Following the Leader series, and I start with one of my mentors, Jim Dethmer. Jim's a coach, he's the author of the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, and he's also the co founder of the Conscious Leadership Group. And I wanted to talk with Jim as he's been one of my great teachers and really the inspiration behind what I do in the world particularly when it comes to conscious leadership. Much of what I learn and teach comes from Jim, and I consider Jim not just a mentor, but a dear friend. And one thing I know for sure is that since doing this work in my life, both personally and professionally, my life has changed exponentially. And I wanted to share that with you. So let's pop into my conversation as we talk about one of the most central practices, which is called the check-in process. check-in, you're doing a couple of things. One, you're getting here now. So the check-in includes three things. What is a current body sensation? What is your current emotional or feeling state? And what's the next thought? And all three of those occur in the now moment. Mm -hmm. It's not what was happening in my body an hour ago or my feelings a week ago, it's what's here now. So the very nature of a check-in is to pause and pay attention. So that's number one, you're getting here now. Second, you're speaking what we call unarguably. In other words, you're getting, you're getting down to that which is most true and completely unarguable, which is a really cool thing to do because most of the drama going on in our lives, individually, and quite frankly, in the collective, is because we're fighting over the highly arguable, which I'm sure you've talked to your listeners about. So a check-in is get here now and get unarguable. I'm glad you reminded me of that because I, I forget that. I forget that it's the non-arguable. And our current experience, our present experience is always unarguable. You can't argue with it. It's just my experience right now. Yes. Oh. So let's model it. Okay, great. You want to go first? Okay. Hmm. So as I still my body and my mind, what I'm most aware of, and my eyes automatically close, I'm aware of a sensation that's occurring from my, my sort of my waist or my core up to my chest. So there's a lot of bubbling sensations. Sometimes I call them um, like the effervescence of a, of a soda pop. That's the predominant experience I'm having in terms of sensations right now. I also notice the palms are a little clammy and sweaty. Then I go to my feeling sensations. And so this is funny. Every time I do this practice, it's funny. So I'm noticing joy. The first thing I'm noticing is joy. There's also some fear that's sort of this undercurrent that's currently there right now that I could name. And um, 
I also feel some heaviness in the chest that I'm not aware of until I slow down, until I really tune in. So I, I'm feeling some sadness. And then the next thought is really just fun to be here with you, see mm. you. Mm. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay, so body sensation. I feel like a pressure in my head kind of pushing forward with a pulsation to it. Uh, feeling state or emotional state. I feel joy and I feel sad. Yeah, joy and sad. Mm -hmm. And my thought as I look out my window is, uh, I'm being enveloped by the trees and their leaves. That's my thought. That sounds beautiful. So I want you to talk about who you are and how you got to where you are, and we're going to get there in a second. But since we just did this practice, I want to talk a little bit about why this practice, why is it so important to get here now and get unarguable? Because it's kind of like the core teaching, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So we talk about conscious leadership, and one of the key terms to define is conscious. There's so many great definitions of conscious. We have a very, very simple, practical one. To be conscious is simply to be here now. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, not in the realm we're talking about it like consciousness, but if you think about it like conscious, if you walk out on the street and you come across somebody who's unconscious, passed out, if you look that word up, the definition is non-responsive. So when somebody has fallen down on the ground and they're unconscious, they're not responsive. So conscious, the way we use it, is to be here now, totally available to be responsive to life. So we say that's being here now, responsive to life, instead of being reactive to life, triggered and reactive which so, so many of us are. Most of us are most of the time, right? That's what we've experimented with and you and I have talked about for years and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's natural and normal to be reactive. Reactive just means that I'm experiencing life as threatening. Mm -hmm. And so much of life occurs to us as threatening. So when I experience life as threatening, I'm not here now. I'm either in the past remembering or I'm in the future anticipating and I'm in a reactive state just simply wanting to survive. Mm -hmm. That's okay. But that's different than being fully conscious. And again, it's not wrong. It's not bad. We say the first key is, can you just be aware of what you are? Mm -hmm. By the way, that's another one of the benefits of a check-in is I'm actually tuning up my awareness, the ability to feel fizziness, like you said, the ability to notice sadness, joy. That's aware. I have to move a little bit outside of my pattern to look back at myself and be aware of what's here. Well, that's one of the first keys to being here now is can I be with what's actually here now? And that's the other reason for the check-in. We're asking that we bring our attention to what's here now. Because all of our suffering, all of our drama is occurring 
when we're not being with what's here now, we're being with something in the imagined future or something in the memory past. Nothing wrong with it, it's just what the mind does. If you just stay in this now moment, uh, presence, there's no suffering. It's so true. And when I first started learning that idea so many years ago, when I first entered meditation, I didn't really get it. Like, I, you know, you can understand it intellectually, but like experientially, it was hard to really get. And I remember sort of arriving at the true understanding of that, like being what it meant to really be in the moment and not be in the future, because we are so conditioned to be in the past and in the future. I mean, we're just conditioned that way. We can't help it. Yes, totally. We are literally conditioned. That's the way our brain works because the brain's job, the mind's job is survival. So the mind's job is not peace. The mind's job is not equanimity. The <laughs> mind's job is the survival of this being. And the only way it can survive is to go back in the past and try to do pattern recognition of what creates danger, try to fix the past, or go into the future and try to anticipate danger. <laughs> so practices like you've done for years, like meditation, all you're doing is bringing your mind back, bring it back to the breath, bring it back to the breath, or like you're a deep practitioner of yoga. Real yoga is just that. Can I keep my attention on the breath in this posture, in this asana? Can I stay right here, right now? Instead of going to my shopping list an hour from now, <laughs> So you've been doing these practices for years, and now you have a felt experience of being in the now moment versus a theory that being in the now moment is a good thing. Yes, yes, and it's a totally different thing. So, you know, I met you about seven years ago. I think I was doing the math before we got on the call, um, and I came to playing with you in forum where you led and facilitated us in teaching us all these beautiful practices to really just cultivate presence over and over and over again, which has been one of my greatest teachings of all time. But I just, I realized I listened to you on the Tim Ferriss podcast a couple weeks ago, which was great. And I learned some new things about you. And I realized here's Jim Duffner. I consider him a dear friend, one of my great mentors someone I've spent a lot of time with over the past seven years. And there were all sorts of things I didn't know about you. So fun, fun little side note that I got to learn a little bit more about you, but I like, give me a, like a, a brief synopsis and, and our listeners, a brief synopsis of like the arc of Jim Duffer, like what's brought you to doing the work you're now doing in the world. Great. Well, what I describe, if you start back at the very beginning was that as a little boy, like I can remember this at seven years old for sure, and I think probably prior to that, there was an ache in my chest. It wasn't there all the time, but it was regularly there. And I think, you know, in simple terms, I was sad and I was lonely. I probably was experiencing in deeper terms, philosophical terms, some sort of existential angst. In clinical terms, some sort of probably subclinical depression. And there's all kinds of reasons that that would have been there in my family of origin. But the effect of it was that there was kind of an outward me that from that age on was, you know, just kind of a normal functioning kid, you know, a pretty good student, pretty good athlete, kind of functioning in the world. But underneath, 
there was this longing, this hunger, really for two things, for peace, for happiness, uh, and for authentic relationship. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful because the hunger in me was big enough, painful enough, that it drove me. Mm-hmm. So from the time I was, you know, a young man, you know, 14, 15 years old, I started actively seeking resolution for the sadness. I wanted peace. I wanted happiness, contentment. And I started actively seeking loving relationships. Mm-hmm. So from the time I was a little kid, I became a seeker. And the great news about that is I was, I was desperate enough that I was willing to prioritize seeking over everything else. Mm-hmm. That's now as I look, it was painful, but now as I look back, it was fabulous mm-hmm. because the result is I started looking all these different places to find answers to these primal questions. And I found some incredible teachers, mentors. Yeah. And I found mentors who had answers. I went in some wild cul-de-sacs that I thought would have answers that didn't. (laughs) That was okay. And some of those I stayed in for a number of years, but then I would leave the cul-de-sac and get back about finding the answers. So I found wonderful teachers, mentors, guides who had answers. And I diligently, passionately practiced like you, meditation or whatever. I practiced it. And now, you know, 50 or 60 years later, I'm 67 now, I have years of reliable experience of what it means to have peace, have quality relationships. And then the third thing, I've always been a leader. Whatever I do, I lead. So I'm always interested in leadership. So I've learned about inner contentment, powerful relationships, and what does transformational leadership look like? Well, all that just became my life and it became my work. But my work wasn't something that I created because I thought it would be a cool thing to do in the world. I created it because it was just the natural outpouring, output of my individual journey. By the way, as an aside, I think that's a great way for all of us to pursue our work. Find out what your internal passion is. What is the question you most want answered in life? Get about answering that and then see if that can become your job, your career, your calling. That's pretty cool. So the more um, overlap in the Venn diagram there is between your deepest longing, your deepest questions, and how it impacts the world at its deepest need, the more you're lined up for the rest of your life. So for me, my work has never felt like work. Right. (laughs) I say this to my kids all the time. It doesn't feel like work. It's just an extension of who I am and what I get to do in the world. Yes, yes. And you and I, we always have to say, especially in this time, we have to say that we are incredibly privileged to be able to do what most lights us up. In the history of humanity, I'll just stay with boys because I identify as a male gender, little boys weren't asked to discover what their passion was and go do that in the world. If my father was a blacksmith, I'm the son of a blacksmith, I become a blacksmith. 
And if my father was a fisherman, I become a fisherman. There was no figure out what your passion is, figure out what your love is, go do that. That was a very small set of people who got to do that called artists, musicians. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if you look at the history of that, most of them were poor. You know, they were supported by somebody who said, I'm interested in your art. So for you and me to sit here in, you know, 2020 and say, we get to do what we love in the world is really a sign of white privilege, quite frankly. It's, it's the ultimate sign. So I want to be really honest and respectful about it. Abs well, absolutely. <laughs> like, absolutely, 100%. Do you think it's possible that... I don't know if possible is the right question. I'm, I'm forming the question. It's like, it's thinking faster than I can catch the words. But, you know, that question you were talking about, like when you, you that deep longing, that deep question you have, and you match it with what you get to do in the world. Yeah. Is that in all of us? Hmm. Do you get that question ever? Oh, yeah. I've never met anybody it wasn't in. Now, mm -hmm. some people, the question and the journey and the answer and the contribution that comes out of it is much closer to the surface. Mm -hmm. Some people, like especially, let's just say, people who have experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. So if you were raised in an environment where you experienced trauma, whether it be physical trauma or alcoholism or drug abuse or the trauma of being shamed or anything like that, then the deep question goes more underground. Right. Because what's more important is just the armoring up mm -hmm. to protect yeah. the innocent, vulnerable one. Yeah. It's still there, but it's often deeply buried. So then that's the gift of, you know, you move through your 20s into your early 30s. And then it's about then that most people start to do the work to uncover to move through the layers, the armoring that's protecting me from my deepest longing and my deepest truth and my deepest gift. So I've never met anybody that isn't there for. Some people it's deeply buried. It's incredible. Yeah. It's that longing you were talking about that you recognized as a young child. You recognized it very early. You were very in tune or in touch with it. Yes. And some people act out of that and form all sorts of addictions. Some people move away from it. Like we all have a different way of navigating that longing or that angst. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I did too. It wasn't like my path was, you know, crystal clear and pristine. For a long time, I just wanted the ache to go away. Yeah. And I made it go away through outward performance. I found out that if I could get people to like me and value me and appreciate me for things I did in the world, mm -hmm. then temporarily the ache went away. Mm -hmm. That's what happens to a lot of us. Again, in our teens, 20s, 30s, we're just compensating. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. That's developmentally what we're supposed to be doing. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> that's why I so appreciate you and your vision and your desire to be a place, a safe space where people in that era can start to ask the deeper questions a little bit earlier than most do. 
Most people, there isn't enough lived experience to start asking the deeper questions until they get into midlife. That's what midlife is for. But your vision is to create a conversation through a safe space that allows people to start into the discussion a little bit earlier. That's fabulous. It's kind of fun. And I think um, you're right. We typically ask these deeper questions as we get a bit older because we've had more experience and we've had some time to you know, make mistakes and figure things out. But I think it's, it's important. I don't even like that word important. It's fun to start asking the questions and start planting those seeds. It's not necessarily we get the answers right away because it's just an evolution. But we can start asking the questions and we can start practicing and start building our awareness and engaging with certain tools to help empower us from a different, at a different time in our lives. And well, I don't know that my life would be any different if I had these tools sooner. Right? And, and I don't know if it matters. Like my life is just perfect the way it is. But I do think that, well, I just have a whole hell of a lot of fun working with young adults and talking to them about these things. So that's why I'm doing what I do. Yes. So, <laughs> so you've known me for now seven years. I've grown a lot with you, a lot. You've been one of my most impactful teachers, friends and mentors, as I said. How would you describe who I was then and who I am today? Can you even remember? Yeah, I was going to say, let me start with who I experienced you to be today, and then we can see if I can remember who I experienced you to be back then. So let me just free associate a little bit here. When I bring Anne-Marie to my mind, my heart, and my body, what comes up? A couple things. First of all, I think you are whip smart. Quick, agile, active mind. And a mind that retains. So you're really good at learning systems and overlaying systems with each other and correlating systems with each other. Hmm. So you've got a quick, agile mind. You're constantly learning. You have fabulous retention capabilities and clear articulation. Hmm. So clarity of articulation. You're able to put things in categories <laughs> and then articulate categories and articulate distinctions, which I think all comes together to make you a skillful teacher, mm. skillful communicator. You communicate with clarity. You communicate with precision. You make fine distinctions. Mm. You see that mind of yours and that ability to communicate. And quite frankly, I think you've always had that. If I go back seven years ago, I experienced you that way around all that seven years ago. In terms of your heart, you're willing to be messy. You're willing to be vulnerable. You're willing to have a raw, exposed heart. Mm. This is probably a little bit of a change. You're more willing to be in your heart than mm -hmm. ever. You're more willing to have a broken heart. You're more willing to have a heart that longs. You're more willing to feel your love. I experience you as a person who's willing to be a big space of love for the world. I'll say it again. You're willing to make a mess. And that's a big deal for me because I don't think there's ever much growth without messiness. <laughs> You've seen a lot of mess over that's the years. exactly right. But you could have chosen another place. You could have chosen to sanitize it, package it, get it all tied up, make it, make it neat and presentable. And you've been willing 
to just come apart at the seams. And therefore, by the way, therefore you are trustworthy because as you work with people and as you mentor people, as you guide people, there's very little in messiness that you haven't been willing to experience yourself. And I think that's one of the keys to a great coach, leader, teacher, mentor is, have they been willing to go to the depth? Have they been willing to go to the fringe? Have they been willing to get undone? Because mm -hmm. that's what your people you work with are going to need to do. So I see you as a huge heart of love. Uh, huge. Thank you. And let me come to the body. I think that this work is a lot about embodiment. By the way, that's why in a check-in we begin with what's in the body. Uh-huh. And yep. I experience you to be somebody who's devoted to embodiment. Yeah. You are in your body. A lot of people are literally not in their bodies. They live a long way away from their body. <laughs> it's true. And you've spent many years becoming embodied, living in your body, knowing your body, knowing the wisdom of your body, knowing the information of your body, trusting the wisdom of your body. So now at a higher level, you have a nice integration of head, heart, and body, all integrated there. Thank and you. the other thing I experience of you, Anne-Marie, is I experience you being for people. So if somebody's going to come into your orbit and they're going to be in a group with you or you're going to be coaching them one-on-one, -on -one, my experience of you is you will be for them. Mm. That's a big deal. You will be for them. You will be standing in the space of deep support for people. I see you doing that over and over again, available, willing, mm. loving, wise. Um, yeah, and I love this about you too. You don't have your shit together all the time. You fall <laughs> at the horse. You, you lose it, you know, which I think makes you relatable. You know, I've been around some mentors who I loved and from whom I got a lot, but quite frankly, they weren't very relatable. Mm. I like to be around mentors who just, you know, are still toddling. They're still learning. They're still making a mess. So yeah. there's some things I experience of you. And all of that was there in seed form. Although I, I would say, you know, when I first met you, you were deeply curious and looking for the right answers <laughs> and the right path. And so the system true. we talked about fit in that and you, uh -huh. and you mastered it. And I feel you less and less interested in the right path, the right answers, and more and more committed to aliveness and love and all that. So those would be some things I'd say about you. Well, thank those you. I feel so seen and it's interesting and so loved. And it's so interesting because as you were saying things, when you first started about being articulate and being able to communicate and I, I so don't hold myself that way. And I, and I'm thinking he's just talking about himself. He's just talking about himself because that's the way I see you. And then I remember, you know, we're all just reflections of one another really ultimately. And the way in which you just described me, I would say, that I have evolved into that as a result of being in community with you. And you have taught me so much of, of all of those beautiful things. So thank you for mm -hmm. um, a saying that and, and honoring that, but also for being the space for me to grow, you know, those seeds to, to grow because they weren't there. And when we first met, I was very armored. You know, I was, I was scared. I was, you know, I was, I was 
40 some odd years old and I was a scared little girl. And I was very in my head and that part of me still exists, of course, but I'm in relationship to it in a much lighter way. But the thing that I think I've most learned from you and one of the reasons that you as a leader and a mentor and a friend I hold so dearly is this part about open-heartedness, this part about vulnerability and this part about getting messy. You know, I have worked with Thich Nhat Hanh and, and Jack Cornfield and Martha Beck and all these great, you know, teachers out in the world. And I've learned so much, but having, being in community with you in this messy place that we get to practice is just, it, it was safe. And it was, it was a safe place to practice with heartbreak and practice being messy and practice being vulnerable. And the more I got to do that in community with you, facilitated by you and your giant big heart, because I think one of your great skills, you have so many of them as a leader of our community and just in the world, you're an incredible listener. Like one of your deep, deep skills is listening. When I was listening to you and Tim Ferriss, he would ask you these very complex questions that had many, many layers. And the way you answered, you would go back to what you wanted to say first, and then you would go back and answer. You would hit on every point he said. And I'm over there going, how did he remember everything Tim just said? So this beautiful gift of listening, which creates such a safe space for those that you're in relationship to. Because once you've always said this to me, and it took a while for me to learn this, but like, if someone just feels heard, if they just feel heard, that's just about all they need. And I think it's one of the best, most compassionate things we can do for one another is listen to one another. And now I'm hearing myself think, here we are in the midst of this crazy time in the world. And all people want is to be heard and seen. And are we able to do that with and for one another? You know, and, and we haven't been, obviously, because the results are people are yelling and screaming because they're not being heard. Can you hear how articulate you are? <laughs> Thank you. No, can you hear it? I'm actually asking you a question. Yeah, I guess. No, I, I couldn't. But, but yes, I can now. Okay, so when we're done, go back and listen to that last yeah. minutes. Yeah. Listen to the crispness and the clarity and yeah. the distinctions that you make. Mm. Thank you for pointing that out. It's important for you and me and all of us to tell ourselves the truth about yeah. who we are, including what our gifts are. Well, here's what I've learned from you about me and about what you just said. I think when I just spoke, I spoke from the heart. Yes. Um, I could even feel emotion coming right now in form of tears, maybe. I was out of my way. You know, in your, in your language, I was above the line in presence, and I was just speaking. I wasn't trying to say anything, which was so a part of my old paradigm, trying to say the right thing, which I still do. So it was just flow. I think when we're in this place of flow, it's easy. <laughs> and, and this is one of the great lessons I've learned from you. So thank you. You're welcome. Hey there. 
You know, we're all aware that these are unprecedented times. And with that inevitably comes a lot of fear, a lot of stress, and a lot of anxiety. And while these are challenging times, these are also times for cultivating resilience, personal growth and development, all valuable skills for you as the next generation of leaders. So I'd like to help you learn to thrive this year while navigating these challenges. This August, I'm offering my Drop the Drama workshops online for free to college students. My Drop the Drama program is designed to help you learn to take responsibility and take control when life feels out of control. You'll learn how to cultivate self-awareness, a fundamental skill of great leaders. You'll learn to be self-empowered and develop lifelong skills to navigate whatever challenges arise in the moment. So you're free to succeed. Hop over to annemarieceresso.me and find a date in August to drop into my free online workshop and set yourself up to thrive this year. Or text I am free to 474747 to get your free meditation and to learn more. Welcome back to university. You're listening to my conversation with friend and mentor, Jim Dethmer. We've been talking about how to get here now, as well as the motivations towards growth for both Jim and me. We pop back into the conversation where I ask him to tell me more about how we as teachers can clear the runway for the next generation of leaders. that one of my great passions is talking to the next generation of leaders. I think that there's a lot of work ahead of us in the world that we're living in as evidenced by what is occurring right now. And this next generation of leaders, you know, I spent the first part of my coaching practice working with parents and which I still do. And I love to do. I started to see how much we interfere with our children's growth. And I started to get with, I really want to talk to young people, help them undo whatever programming came from their unconscious parents, from a very honest, beautiful place. No shame there. Even my own, I still see it. I own some stuff with Robert, who's my 21-year-old son, who you know well. And I said to him yesterday, I see how early in my parenting, I had this inner critic, this judge and I see it in you now, and I don't blame you for because he's so righteous. Mm-hmm. And I go, that comes from me. Like, I gave that to you. And so now I know my job isn't to tell him he's wrong for being a judge. My job is to create that space you created for me, which is this open, compassionate, kind, patient place for him to come to a clearer place of truth. But I see how I planted those seeds. And so if we can help our young people sort of pull the weeds that belong to their parents to make more space to cultivate their authentic seeds, then the runway they have can just be a little bit more clear for them. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk to you. You've spent much of your career now talking to leaders and working with leaders, which you've had great success in. I want you to talk a little bit about what does leadership mean to you? I know what it does, but I want you to speak it to our audience. Mm, okay. Well, I define a leader 
as somebody who is taking radical responsibility for the influence they're having in the world. So whatever else a leader is doing, they're influencing. Mm -hmm. you know, if, if you think you're a leader and there's nobody that is being influenced by you and you're not aware of it, you're probably not a leader. But if you turn on your awareness, you discover you're having influence every place you go. Whether it's in your dorm or in your, uh, you know, at your company or in your family of origin. So one of the things that a leader does is they start to pay attention to the influence they're having. When they show up, what happens? Uh -huh. When they enter a room, what shows up in the room? Uh -huh. When they speak and act, what occurs? So First thing is they become more and more self-aware of the influence they're having. So self-awareness is one of the first keys to conscious leadership, to all leadership. How self-aware am I of the influence I'm having? And then the other piece is they take responsibility for the influence they're having. They don't blame people's circumstances or conditions. They start to take radical responsibility for being the creator of their experience. And you know, this is a key part of what you're up to. Supporting people to move from being at the effect of the world to being a creator of the world. From to me, life is happening to me, to by me, I am creating my experience. So leaders are people who take radical responsibility. They're self-aware for the influence they're having in the world. And then they start to cultivate a set of leadership qualities. And I think this can start very, very early in life. And the leadership qualities that I suggest that people cultivate are qualities like self-awareness, self-acceptance. By the way, you can see this in you. So Robert, you're noticing, can be a little bit righteous, a little bit critical. Okay, and you go, oh, I know where you got that, sweetheart. <laughs> that was me. Great. But you've done this work where you can be self-aware of the one in you who can be critical. And now this is really important. You become loving and self-accepting of that one. You don't make that one wrong and bad. Because in order for you to point it out in Robert and be a space of acceptance for Robert, you had to accept it in you first. Yes. Because you can't accept in another person what you can't accept in yourself. So you've done all this work around your inner judge and your inner critic, which allows you to see it, to say it, and to accept it. So self-awareness and self-acceptance are cornerstones of conscious leaders. So when leaders are in their late teens, 20s, early 30s, it's the time to grow in self-awareness. And there are only a few ways you can grow in self-awareness. One is you can become more self-observant by asking yourself a set of questions by becoming more self-reflective. Another is you can create a feedback-rich environment where you're asking people to give you feedback, which is basically what we've done in our relationship and the community that we're part of. Yep. We give each other feedback all the time. Uh -huh. So you can become more aware. And by the way, sometimes that feedback 
is firm, strong, challenging. Uh-huh. I know it. I've been in it. Leads to another quality of great leaders, in my judgment, is the capacity to be candid, mm-hmm. to be authentically revealed, to tell their truth, but to tell their truth in a way that invites other people to be curious and learn. Mm-hmm. It's not just blurting your truth and scorching the earth. So self-awareness, self-acceptance, uh, candor. You mentioned deep listening. Yep. Ever else a great leader is, it's someone who has the capacity to deeply listen. So that when you're around a great leader, you feel seen, you feel gotten, and you feel blessed and accepted. Like they see me, they get me, and they accept me and love me. And then they support me to be my highest and best self. That's what great leaders do. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, another thing, and there's so much here, but there's another, another thing I see in you that I didn't say earlier. I think one of your qualities is you're a warrior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think you've been a warrior all your life. Yeah. And great leaders have a sword. They have the ability to bring a warrior to the world. Now, not a brutalizer, not a masochist or a sadist. Right, there's a difference. Yes, but a warrior who is clean. Much of what's being required in our world right now are leaders who can be warriors for a higher calling and that's one of your qualities. Would you say that about yourself? That I have a sword? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I would too. So, and I do think you're right. Like you get the sword and you're like a kid with a new toy mm-hmm. and you're a little messy with it at first. And then you, then you figure it out. And I think that you talked about a couple of things, self-awareness, which is, is fundamental. You know, that I have a meditation background and I think it's self-awareness is fundamental to anything particularly leadership and consciousness. But then you talk about the self-acceptance piece and I'll bring it back to the sword in a minute, but I think particularly in this early time in our lives, you know, our twenties and our thirties, when we're sort of figuring out who we are and trying ourselves on, that self-acceptance piece is so hard and we're so critical of ourselves and so judgmental. And this is why there's so much, you know, social media is so damaging and because we're just, we're always comparing ourselves. But I do remember embodying that thing you were talking about earlier, like, oh, like I just judge people. You know, that's just what I do. And by the way, so does everyone else, but it doesn't make that okay or right or wrong. It just is like, oh, I do that. And, And when I first got aware of that in me, I had shame. And I didn't like it. And I wanted to look the other way and I wanted to deny it. And so the self-acceptance piece, you know, you and I are talking about, and we're saying self-awareness and self-acceptance and candor. And these are all great words intellectually, but it's this embodiment thing that I want to keep coming back to. Really accepting yourself, no matter where you are and what you do, it's okay. And, And it took so long for me to really get that. And now I'm curious did that take a long time for Jim Dethmer to learn? The Decades. Yeah. Decades. And there's so much here, but I just want to point out one thing, especially for people in the earlier developmental stages. A lot of times what's required to develop self-acceptance 
is to be in the presence of another person who sees you and accepts you just the way you are. Yeah. And I think this is one of your roles in uh, people's lives, Henry, is you see people and you create a space of safety and acceptance. Sometimes you see them more clearly and accept them more fully than they're able to see and accept themselves. That's the role of a mentor. Mm-hmm. One of the roles. Yeah. And that's perfectly okay. A lot of times in the early developmental stages, I haven't lived enough life yet to cultivate a deep sense of self-acceptance. That's okay. Just find some other people who will give you the gift of acceptance. Mm-hmm. So you can start to get a felt sense in your body of what it feels like to look in the eyes of another human being who sees you and says, I see you and I accept you and feel that in your body. And then you'll learn over time how to give it to yourself. But at the beginning, you just have to get it off some other people for a while because they have more love and acceptance for you than you do for yourself. Yeah. You don't take the training wheels off right away. Like you'll be riding them for a while. So who was, who was that person for you? who gave me that early on, mm-hmm. well, through years of psychotherapy, at the <laughs> very earliest stage, my mother's mother, who was around for the first two years of my life, uh. Uh, who died when I was two years old, but through all kinds of things, I've gotten very, very clear. She had a large body and she was Norwegian and spoke with a strong Norwegian accent. And I have this deep embodied sense that she saw me, she loved me, and literally physically held me in the presence of a body that wasn't braced or reactive. So it encoded something in me. And then I forgot about it. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, I've found countless people who have seen me, not the least of which is my wife, Debbie. Yeah. No, and love. Debbie now, currently, regularly sees me and accepts me. I have tons of self-acceptance now, but for the last, you know, I've known Debbie since I was 15. I think she was doing that for me when I was 15 years old. Interesting. We've been together in an intimate, committed relationship for 25 years. So I've been getting it there. Countless people who said, I see you and I accept you. It's interesting to me that you remember your grandmother from two years old and those early experiences, uh, you said you forget it, right? Like we forget it up here, but again, once again, you don't forget it in the body. In the body. So you said something earlier and you talked about as a leader, you pay attention to who you're influencing and then you pay attention to the results, right? Like the results are like when you walk into a room, you see what your influence is by the reactions you're getting, the responses you're getting, the results. What's one way right now that you're taking responsibility for your influence in the world? Well, in an incredibly practical way, this week, I've been re-listening to White Fragility in the midst of all that's going on in the world and re-owning my racism I don't mean by that individual racism, prejudice. I mean by that living in the context of structural racism and being the constant beneficiary as a white 
cisgendered rich person and all the impact that that has had in the world. So very specifically what that means to me is much of the consciousness work in the world, as I observe it, the kind of world that I live in is still largely white privileged. And I'm taking responsibility for how I have continued to create a consciousness conversation that is largely white privileged. Now, as you know, in the last couple of years, I've begun to change that, who occupies the seats and everything I do and where I go in the world. Mm -hmm. But that's a place where I'm taking radical responsibility for the effect that I'm, as a leader, as a speaker, as a communicator, a thought leader for consciousness in the world, I'm taking responsibility for the collective conversation and how destructive the collective conversation is. So I want to be about changing the collective conversation by first and foremost, growing in self-awareness, mm -hmm. privilege, and second, deeply listening, and then third, being a place of action and stance for a different conversation in the collective. So that's a big idea at the meta level. That's a big yep. idea at the meta level. However many breaths I have, however many trips around the planet I have, I want to be responsible for a different conversation in the collective around consciousness, which I think needs to occur for us, for the world to emerge, the emergent future for it to come forward requires a different conversation that I want to be responsible for. Do you have any fears around it? Tons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Tons. You know, like for the collective, I have a fear that we have been so unconscious that in order for the new con conversation to emerge, things might need to literally burn down. Mm -hmm. And it scares me. And if that's what needs to happen, then that's what needs to happen. I hope that isn't the case. Yeah. I have big fears about that. Yeah, I am with you on that. I can see how both can be true. Right. And it'll just depend on how much we're all willing to listen and break our hearts and open. Yes. Risk and reorganize, you know, and I mean, at a very practical level, are the people of wealth and privilege willing to move this thing called money energy into the world? Just take education so that education isn't tied to property tax so that the family that you're born into and the neighborhood you live in is going to determine the quality of your education. Well, for that to change, people like me and people like you need to be open to a completely different way. And are we willing to do that? And, and then healthcare and on and on we go. Uh, we can go on and on. It is a, a waking up process for us all to participate in equally. And well, I don't know about equally. Right now, I think it's, it's leaning a little heavily over onto one side than the other. I, you answered one question, which was, who's held that space for you um, that I asked a minute ago, and you, you mentioned Gay Hendricks and your grandmother and, and Debbie and many others. But I want to ask you the question, who's been a big influence in terms of a leader and not necessarily 
someone you know or has had a direct impact on you, but if you, if you look out into the world of leaders, who is it that you think you look to or you admire, you respect that's out in the world leading? I'm smiling right now because, Debbie and I have been quarantined up in Michigan for a long time, and uh, we don't watch a lot of TV, but we decided we were going to watch the TV show West Wing, which we had never watched. This is important because I think fictional characters can become incredibly inspirational. And Jeb Bartlett, who's the president in that show, is incredibly inspirational to me. Uh, So he would be one right now, like this week, today, tonight. We watch one episode a night, you know, there's like seven seasons. And every night I'm inspired by him. So that would be one very practical thing. Um, Oh, wow. Who would be my current? Because the typical ones would all show up for me. The typical would all say. A leader that I'm currently inspired by. Well, the woman who wrote White Fragility, Robin DiAngelo. I listened to her on NPR the other night, and I was inspired by her humility, her vulnerability, her white hot clarity and anger. In order to have a sword, you have to have clean anger. And I think she's got clean anger. And right now, she is in an incredible position of leadership and influence. I think that book is one of the two leading selling books in the world right now. Sam Harris, I think, is a leader that I'm inspired by. And what inspires me about Sam Harris is he might be the most, one of the most brilliant people on the planet, you know, a trained neuroscientist. So unbelievably smart, but deeply connected to oneness and to the heart and to meditation as a practice. He's a leader that I'm stalking and grokking and learning from. And then the normal ones, Martin Luther King, and so on and so forth. But I look for current leaders that inspire me a lot. I was asked that question. I was on a podcast recently, and someone asked me that question, and I I, I noticed my mind go blank. Mm. You know, and I was sort of looking like what's right in front of me out in the world right now, and the leaders that are most sort of yeah. prominent. And and I I was like, oh, and it sort of broke my heart a little bit, thinking. You know, of course, the obvious ones, if you go back in history, there's all these, you know, regarded leaders. But if you take that away, I think sometimes it can be a challenging question to answer to to find the right answers. Um, So we're going to wrap up in a minute because I know you're going to go golfing. I am. Uh, (laughs) I'm very excited for you. And I know that you and I could talk for a long, long time. But I would like you to just, as we wrap up, share some advice you'd have for the next generation of leaders. And it maybe speak to three different kinds of leaders, right? So I see this next generation I'm working with, like I see activists out there, you know, activists who are out there doing nonprofit, heavy duty lifting work, right? I see entrepreneurs out there. I see social media influencers out there. There's all different ways of leading right now. And one of the things that I've learned from you is that I, I sort of align leadership and influence together, just like you have. That's how you've taught me. And it's, that really aligns for me. And now as the world is opening up, there are so many ways to influence. And one of the things I like to remind our audience is it doesn't matter if you're leading one or 100 million, like your impact, it's relevant. It really matters. So what's some advice you have for the next generation in, in some of those different categories? Okay, a couple of things that would apply to all. So I'll just go there. 
I would want them to be asking over and over again, what do I want? What do I really want? Mm. To live in those questions. What do I want? What do I really want? I think the 20s is an era to ask and answer those questions, which leads to my second one. Experiment and fail. Experiment and fail. Experiment and fail. You think you want that? Try it. And then you go, nope, that wasn't it. Good, super, check it off, try something else. I want this, I really want this. I try it, nope, that's not it. It's the time to explore, experiment, learn, all in search of who am I? Mm -hmm. Not just what are my gifts and capabilities, what can I do in the world, but who am I? And that's deeply tied to what do I want? What do I most want? take risks, fail, make messes, get up and do it again. And you know, there's nothing new here. It's, it's so easy to want to lead in order to be famous. And that's okay. If that's what you're up to, then do that for a while. But most people will experience that fame is quite hollow. It's a good way to, it's a good word, hollow. Yeah. Not a bad thing. Just if you're going to do it, I always say to people, if you're going to go that route, I hope you get there quickly. (laughs) Because then you'll more quickly discover that fame is a little bit hollow. If fame comes because you're aligned with who you are most deeply and you're doing what you most want to do, great. But fame for fame's sake is such a seduction. And like you refer to social media, I'm not on any social media of any kind. So I'm a, you know, a Luddite in this regard, but I'm intentionally not on any of it because I don't want to keep constantly putting who I am up for a vote. Mm. Ah. Things that I see social media doing, either I'm still trying to find myself or I'm taking myself and putting myself up constantly for a vote. And I think that's a distraction. Yeah. It's major distraction. And something came up for me as you were saying that. And a question that I ask myself almost every day now that came from our community, what is mine to do? And I really like that question because particularly now, and I just want to say this before we fully wrap up, particularly now in this time when so much is going on and young people are so on fire, you know, the world's sort of on fire and everyone wants to put the fire out Mm -hmm. and they're filled with this, like, you know, all this energy there's a lot of doing and there's not a lot of being, which, which is okay. I get that. That makes sense because there are so many things for us to do. And, and when we look at the, the smorgasbord of problems out in the world or things to solve, it can become overwhelming and we can almost bury ourselves in the, in the stress or the overwhelm of it. So I do think one piece of advice that I would like to offer, not that anyone asked, but I'm going to offer it anyway, is to focus on like what is yours to do? There's, there's a gift you have to give. And yes, there's lots of work to do in the world, but trust if you do yours, someone else is going to get in their lane and do theirs and traffic will run smoothly. But if we start getting in other people's lanes, we create traffic jams and it's not good for any of us. Wow. That was a really fun little analogy that just popped up. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Uh, Another way of saying that is be as mindful about what you're saying no to as what you're saying yes to. Yeah. Great leaders have incredibly clear no's. Yeah, this is something you've taught me. This is something I've only learned in the past seven years. Deep bow. Back at you. 
Thank you. Thank you. I love you deeply. Love you deeply. Bye. Bye. That was my conversation with my dear friend and mentor, Jim Dethmer. You can find out more about Jim and his work at conscious.is. I've also included some relevant social media handles in the show notes, so be sure and check those out. And I want to thank you, Jim, for your continued support, your reliable guidance, and your willingness to practice what you preach and really get in the game. Your great gift of leadership has changed me profoundly, and I'm deeply, deeply grateful for you. Now, for some homework. You know, there have been a lot of practices I've learned from Jim, and the check-in, which we did at the top, is one I talk about over and over again, and I practice often throughout my day. But today, I wanted to invite you to go a little bit more deeply, deepening your self-awareness. You know, one of the most important takeaways for me from the work I've done with Jim and the Conscious Leadership Group is welcoming feedback as an opportunity to learn, to grow, and to evolve. You know, we're always getting feedback. The question is, are we paying attention to it? When we intentionally create a feedback-rich environment with people you trust, who are practicing these same foundational practices, where you can ask people to give you your unarguable feedback, so you become more self-aware. This, I find, is the key to truly shifting your awareness. My invitation today is to find three to five people in your life to become your feedback circle. Ask these friends if they'd be willing to give you unarguable feedback based on the results you create in your life. And by unarguable, I mean people cannot argue with it. So this is what it looks like. You simply share your in-the-moment, authentic experience, which boils down to sharing the sensations you're noticing, the feelings you're having, and the thoughts that are arising in the moment. You're simply reporting to one another your experience. When we learn to create a feedback-rich environment with people we trust and love, it's my experience that we grow, evolve, and transform as people and leaders. Okay, that's all for now. I hope you breathe easily, take it one moment at a time, and keep doing the things you love. And I'll see you next time. The university's executive producer is Tyler Green of thestoryproducer.com. This podcast is also produced and edited by Katie Clarkson. The university team also includes Marsha Craig, Ashwath Narayanan from Culture Media, Adam Harris, and Kim Redding. University is a production of Bring It Home, founded by Anne-Marie Chiresso. You can find out more at A-N-N-M-A-R-I-E-C-H-E-R-E-S-O dot me. Or follow us at Anne-Marie Chiresso on Instagram. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this show on your favorite podcast app and write us a review. It really does help us have more of an impact in the world. Thanks so much for listening in, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Can you hear how articulate you are? (laughs) Thank you.